Hi, I'm Trevor Elio. And I'm Julie Stern, and this is Conceptually Speaking, the show where we interview experts to uncover the concepts and patterns that help us organize our world. From farming to fashion, we can understand any field through acquiring, connecting, and transferring conceptual relationships. We hope this podcast will inspire teachers and students to design creative solutions to complex problems and accelerate innovation in today's schools. If you're interested in our work, you can find out more at edtosavetheworld.com. This week on Conceptually Speaking, we chatted with concept-based certified consultant, PYP teacher, and author of Pop-Up Studio, Misty Patterson. What I loved about this episode is Misty's ability to cross boundaries and integrate different practices. Though loose parts may appear to be fun and frivolous to the uninitiated, this episode makes it clear just how complex, nuanced, and rewarding they can be when used with intention and discernment. They are springboards for inquiry, tools for meaning-making, and primers for analogical thinking. It's a practice that becomes even more powerful when paired with a curriculum anchored by concepts, which, in their own way, are the loose parts of our world, elements to be observed, combined, and related to one another in ways that create the patterns that help us make sense of complexity. I really see the world as relational. I'm very interested in relationships between, you know, ideas between people, between stuff that we use. And I think those uh, relationships are just super important. It forms how we see the world, how we respond. Um, so I'm really interested in the roles that materials play in shaping our understanding of the world as it is and reimagining what it can be. Our conversation with Misty was filled with practical tips, exemplars, and strategies that you can start using in your classroom tomorrow. I definitely recommend checking out her Instagram as it provides a great visual portal through which you can see how her work comes alive in the classroom and during her PD sessions. Our guest this week is Misty Patterson, a certified consultant in concept-based pedagogy, IB PYP teacher, facilitator, and author of Pop-Up Studio. Welcome, Misty. Hello. I'm super happy to be here. Thank you for having me. We are very excited to have you. So can you start by talking to us a little bit about Pop-Up Studio? For sure. Um, Well, Pop-Up Studio is a structure that creates purposeful, focused, and playful experiences that use a conceptual lens and compelling materials to help learners generate and transfer their ideas. Um, In sort of concrete terms, that's a little bit abstract, I guess. In concrete terms, there's a design guide, um, and the title is Pop-Up Studio, Playfully Igniting Agency, Artistry, and Understanding with Concepts and Compelling Materials. It's a beautiful design guide. It's um, designed for anyone who creates learning experiences and really wants to pop them up and make them three-dimensional. It's a beautiful book. There's full color photography. The paper is really nice quality. And everyone who's, who's received the book so far, purchased the book, feels like it's an invitation. It's an invitation for thinking and for learning and going deep. And um, I love that. So that's it in a nutshell. Yeah, awesome. I love it too. For, so for our listeners, uh, Misty and I have known each other for, for a, a few years now. Uh, we met at the Lynn Erickson Concept-Based Curriculum Instruction Institute back in Montana back in 2015. Um, and we just really hit it off. Uh, we I, I love everything about what Misty does. And she's shipped. I purchased a book, at, but I think I pre-ordered it. I was so excited to get it. And when it finally arrived uh, to my home in the Dominican Republic, um, I yeah, I just fell in love with it. It's so great. And and I in one way, I, I wonder if this is correct. Maybe my, my lens, because I have small kids, um, I have kids in pre-K and kindergarten, um, I thought it's uh, really great for elementary. Is it intended to be K through 12 or pre-K through 12? Or like, I, because now I see myself trying to push secondary teachers to be more playful. Um, and so I'm just wondering if your target audience was teachers of a certain age group or, or all teachers. Yeah, I really appreciate that question. Thank you for asking that because in terms of audience um, and the work that I do and mm-hmm. the work that my um, contributing author, Janice Nowakowski, who is amazing, mm-hmm. she should be on your mm-hmm. show. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, yeah uh, we work in elementary settings and mm-hmm. earlier settings. Um, mm-hmm. 
uh, well, actually, let me correct. Janice um, is a teacher consultant at K to 12. But for me personally, my lived experience uh, really is rooted from early years to grade seven in terms of my teaching, my, my eight daily kind of teaching experiences um, and my consulting practice. Mm-hmm. Um, but I also use this work a lot with adult learners. Um, I taught at the university and obviously with, with coaching and consulting work. So while my own lived experience has not been in secondary, the principles and practices of the book, I believe would apply beautifully um, because they're rooted in research and they're rooted Mm -hmm. in, um, you know, meaningful learning practices that are meant to be responsive and flexible. Mm, Love that. um, So I want to get to the research but first, just because our, our listeners are familiar with our process, could you share with our listeners what your three words were and how that process was for you of, of can you determine three words to sort of concepts that define Pop-Up Studio or that anchor Pop-Up Studio? For sure. It was a really generative process. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I enjoy thinking a lot. Um, mm-hmm. So it was great to be able to kind of put pen to paper or, you know, fingers to keys and, and, and make a list of 10. I knew I was allowed 10. So it was, um, it was a generative process, a challenging process because one of the things with um, pop-up studio is it is um, it, it's done uh, as Kath Murdoch talks about um, it's, it's simplified a very complex process Mm -hmm. of inquiry, Mm -hmm. um, concept-based inquiry. So it presents as, as, um, as simple and accessible, which is great, but the work is super dynamic. So it's, uh, and, and complex. And so it's difficult to kind of, um, limit it, I guess, to three, because I feel like sometimes that reduces and uh, I don't want to reduce, but I want it to be accessible. So my three for pop-up studio, while I could have had so many more, are (laughs) artistry, purposeful play, experience, uh, because that reflects one of the frameworks in the book, and materials. So artistry, purposeful play, and materials are my three that I'm excited to talk with you about and think with you about today. No, that's great. Could, could we maybe start with, and maybe we can uh, sort of bounce these off of each other, because you, you were just mentioning sort of like the, the research basis for the book, but also this idea of artistry. Because I feel like oftentimes when we think about things like play or artistry, those more creative, creative dynamic fields, the idea that those things sort of stand um, counter to or separate from research. Um, and I think that that's a, a binary that we get a lot of joy sort of busting up and, and looking at how um, you can have both of those things under the same sort of umbrella. So could you talk to us a little bit about that concept of artistry and maybe how that enmeshes with um, some of the research within the book? Yeah, for sure. Um, there's a quote that I have um, uh, very early on in the book by Elliot Eisner. And it's from What Can Education Learn from the Arts About the Practice of Education? And the mm. quote goes like this, and I want to I actually read the quote because um, I think it's, it's been very provocative for me to think about. And I, I think it could be provocative for your listeners as well. So um, Eisner writes, the aim of education ought to be conceived as the preparation of artists, individuals who have developed the ideas, the sensibilities, the skills, and the imagination to create work that is well-proportioned, skillfully executed, and imaginative, regardless of the domain in which an individual works. The highest accolade we can confer upon someone is to say that he or she, or they, is an artist, whether as a carpenter or a surgeon, a cook or an engineer, a physicist or a teacher. And I love that because I think when we imagine work as craft, I feel like it's an, uh, a, a, an upscale of the work. It's that place of innovation, of nudging boundaries. It's the, it's the wow factor. Um, and so for me, that notion of artistry is really important. Um, and there's now more and more uh, research to support that notion, I think, as we look at Project Zero as an example of that. And um, artistry, for me, comes from lots of different inspirations. Um, but the book and why I chose artistry to talk about Pop-Up Studio 
is because this work was in response to a collection or constellation of, of, of events and ideas and requests. Um, as you know, and you mentioned in the intro that I'm from British Columbia, and we have a concept-based curriculum that's really rooted in inquiry. And in fact, when you look at our curriculum, um, all of the disciplines are laid out in the same sort of framework. There's big ideas, there's curricular competencies, and there's content. And the content bar is actually a list of concepts. So for our educators who are now mandated to be practicing and living out and, and co-creating this curriculum with learners, it's a very different way of working than our previous curriculum, and I'm gonna speak from my own lived experience now, of having um, much more, like way longer lists of, of outcomes, now we're talking about learning standards, uh, that are um, really, um, digestible and almost you know prescriptive like describe the solar system right and so it's quite clear of like okay well that's the outcome and of course i think our mandated curriculum really informs our practice so for many educators um we are given this gift of autonomy um but the the curriculum i think um, assumes a lot of competence for educators in a number of different areas i think concept-based being one of them right and so um for me, the, there was a lot of request of how can we make sense of this curriculum that I believe in my own personal views asks us to be artists. Um, and, you know, I think mm -hmm. about Barry Bennett. I worked with him early on in, uh, in my master's work before I changed programs. And, you know, he talks about, as others do, the art and science of teaching. And, and I, I agree with that. But my work and my focus and my interest currently is in the art of teaching. Um, so, yeah, and I think also with the, the need and the interest for design thinking uh, right now, um, I also think a bit of the pushback to consumerism. Um, you know, I think about this idea, uh, Christina Delgado talks about this, um, children consuming activities, mm. right? And what kind of human is created when that is the context for learning, potentially, right? And I think for teachers too, it's, high, it's a, so crazy, our jobs, it's like so complex. Um, it can be uh, appealing, I think, to turn our practice over to, um, you know, lesson plans that are already created for us or kind of consumables. I know that's kind of, you know, when I first became a teacher, I went to the teacher store right away and I purchased as much as I could afford. <laughs> that really helped me feel like I was prepared. Right. So, you know, I think there's um, I'm interested in having creating conditions where children and educators are protagonists. They're provocateurs in the learning, uh, which maybe sounds quite Reggio inspired. Um, so, yeah. And the other thing I think, too, for, for the artistry piece in this, this work, a pop up studio is in response to my concern about our profession in the sense of I think at least what I'm seeing is a growing uh, desire for flexibility, um, being able to kind of work at home. I think the volume and complexity of our, of our roles is, is increasing all the time. And so I, I get really concerned, especially because I do work with those um, early years to middle years age, mm -hmm. um, that relationships are so important as we know. And so I, I, I'm, I'm concerned my own kids are in, in that age, uh, elementary age right now. And I don't want it to be a revolving door of educators mm -hmm. um, for any child, but also for, for teachers, I want it to be a really joyful experience. Mm -hmm. I want it to be a profession that we're proud of and that we see ourselves in and we're, we're learning and growing and developing. Um, and so, you know, my, my book with Janice is, is an attempt to keep that dialogue going and um, present our work in playful, rigorous, appealing ways. Yeah. Could you, yeah. I wonder if you could give us an example. I don't know uh, if you could sort of off the top of your head, but you know, just for our listeners to sort of, who don't have the book in front of them, uh, yeah, the sure. book is filled with pictures and examples, but for, for our listeners, could you give us an example of what, what, it, what it means to sort of plan a lesson um, using Pop-Up Studio? Yeah, for sure. So there are two frameworks in the book. Um, one is a design framework, if you will, or you might think of it as a lesson planning. Mm -hmm. um, those aren't words that I use a lot anymore, but a planning kind of framework. So mm -hmm. that framework um, 
uh, is comprised of three elements that are interactive, concept, material, and experience. And then the other framework is a reflective framework or an assessment framework. And those are four A's. And they are abundance, authenticity, awareness, and anew. So I, uh, we offer uh, a reflective cycle. Um, the book is, is very practical in nature, but it's not meant to be prescriptive. So there was um, a lot of work put into the language to keep it invitational, but, and uh, because it's a work in progress, as I'm a work in progress, um, it, it really helps to be thinking about what you're doing with learners, I think regardless of age, from those lenses. So I'll give you an example. Um, you might think, and you could kind of start anywhere, but you might think about a concept that you have to teach. Maybe it's measurement. Um, you might think about the experience that you want children to have. And one of my, my concepts I'm going to be speaking with you today is about purposeful play. So that's one of the uh, lenses I like to think about when I think about an experience. So I want it to be hands-on. I want it to be multidimensional, uh, multimodal. Um, so I'm thinking about what kind of experience do I want children to have or learners to have in this? And then the materials. So uh, I know that's a concept we're gonna talk about today as well, but I'm gonna think about what are the affordances of the materials that can align really well with the concept that I'm hoping and I'm aiming for learners to be really working with and generating. So those four A's really come into play because I want it to be authentic. I want it to be real. I want it to be the real work that real people do in the world. Um, I want it to be abundant. I want there to be multiple ways of working and multiple ways of knowing. Um, I want it to be uh, I want that awareness. So I'm thinking about how do I want children to or learners to come to understand this, but I don't want to impose all of my biases <laughs> and understandings onto the learner. So I'm going to hold, you know, what I'm thinking and going for. I'm going to hold it um, somewhat lightly. And that's where the anew comes in because I want to continually bring understandings up anew or renovate understandings. So an example might be family. Um, I hope, uh, this is quite liberal, I guess to say, but I hope our understanding of family continues to morph and change over time, that it doesn't remain static. Um, so I'm thinking about that CME or see me, because when we work this way, I think we really see the learners, at least I do, and I see myself, but I'm going to critique that plan um, with the four A's. When I'm engaging that plan in real time with learners, I can use the four A's to check in and see how it's going to, so that's through observation. Also through conversation, I can ask questions like, you know, what's nudging your thinking right now? Mm -hmm. um, who else works this way? Um, how is your understanding of this changing? And mm -hmm. I'm listening and nudging with my questions all the time. So those four A's can be really great critical thinking partners to mm -hmm. deepen the work. Mm -hmm. um, so if you're familiar with um, Ann Davies' work in the assessment triangle, uh, I find for my own self that the four A's really help with that observation conversation mm -hmm. uh, piece of that triangulation. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And so if we were going to say, let's just, if we don't mind sticking with measurements, because I'm just thinking yeah, sure. about some of the things that um, my, my, because my kids were quote unquote online uh, yeah. this past spring, um, it, at first it started off like do this app. And everything was on yeah. the iPad. And then the, the, like, I think most people, we, they, the school learned. They were amazing. They kept uh, innovating and, and sort of shifting as the weeks went by. Eventually, it came down to uh, a lot more work for the, for the, for the parents. Um, but mm -hmm. but I, like, I, I preferred it. You know, one example I'm thinking of, if you're th saying measurement, um, yeah. was they would say, okay, mom or dad or parent or sibling, go and grab uh, a, a whole bunch of objects. Yep. and ask your child to sort them between heavy and light yep, um, or something like that. Is that kind of what we're thinking about here? I'm like, was my school, kid's school doing sort of Mitzi yes. Patterson's pop-up <laughs> studio? I'm going to have to send them one of your books. They would love it. Oh, my kid's yeah, school. that would be great. That would be great. <laughs> I'd love to hear, you know, what they think. Cause it, like I said, it's a work in progress. So I'm constantly looking for feedback. Um, yeah. So I'll give you an example um, with my son uh, mm -hmm. who's, who's six. And, and measurements. So similar to what you're saying, Julie, we had um, uh, an invitation uh, for doing some measurement as part of our remote learning. And um, we were looking at standard and non-standard. 
so we had um, some materials at home that are uniform. So we use paper clips. Um, my husband <laughs> works in an office, so we have you know lots of office materials kind of around. And yeah, we use paper clips, and then we also had a measuring tape. Um, so we were using those materials to explore those concepts. Now, Winton uh, is very interested in engineering uh, and architecture. He's a phenomenal builder. That's my son. And uh, we just finished a renovation not too long ago, and, and our contractor is still kind of around. So he sees us measuring all the time and talking about um, the length and the width and the height. And we, we, we just uh, got a table made not that long ago. So we were doing a lot of checking and rechecking, measuring, remeasuring. So he's there, like, um, I wanted to put my old table on Craigslist. And so he's like, mommy, we have to measure it. Mm. And so I'm like, well, <laughs> how, what should we use <laughs> right, mm -hmm. to measure? And what is this called again? Oh, the length and the width and the height. And we talked about why we, those need to be accurate for somebody because they, they're going to want to know if it's going to fit in their house. Mm. Um, and we had different parts because the table comes apart. There's leaves in the table. So, you know, do we need to, and two of them are exactly the same. So we talked about, do we need to measure each one um, or are mm. they the same? And we mm. just multiply. So these other mathematical concepts came into play into play in our conversation as well. Um, and then he proceeded to get his toolkit. He has a, a real toolkit that's um, child size. And I don't know where he found some wood. <laughs> but I turn around and he's hammering like with barefoot and he's got the measuring tape and he's measuring. I'm like, Winston, what are you doing? He's like, I'm making, I'm making my own table, mommy. <laughs> Mm. <laughs> um, you know, so, so that's, that was a really, you know, uh, really cool moment to see this work in action. And I'm constantly, you know, a researcher of, of my own life and, and my life with children. And I feel so fortunate that I get to have those moments where I can be looking and listening closely and get inspiration from what they're doing. I love that. I love that. It's not just what is measurement, but why, what is the role? What is the purpose? It sounds like, you know, those are some of our favorite questions to ask um, when totally. we're working with teachers. And it seemed like that came up with, with your son with that example. So that's really cool. Totally. Yeah. Totally. Mm -hmm. And it seems like whenever we take some sort of, especially an abstract skill, the type of which is practiced a lot in, in more process oriented disciplines like math or English, and you anchor it in a context, um, it does, I love the, the use of your word invitation, it does become an invitation to learn as opposed to a skill that has to be learned for its own sake. Um, so I think that a lot of times when it comes to the skills that we ask students to sort of embark on and learn about, we kind of put it forth as like, that's just, the, it's on the assessment, right? That's why you need to learn. So it, it can really, not only is it, is it, a good motivator for students for them to see how those skills work and exist and function in the real world but it also makes learning stronger as well because they aren't just thinking about this skill in this sort of like decontextualized vacuum but they're seeing how it how it works across multiple contexts which then mm -hmm. helps them transfer mm -hmm. it more easily mm -hmm. um so totally, oh, go ahead. yeah yeah no i was just gonna say i think that brings is a nice segue to um that notion of purposeful play mm -hmm. um that's my second second concept to talk mm -hmm. about. Um, and it also is making me think about um, the work of, of uh, David Perkins and his article, Playing the Whole Game. Mm -hmm. um, I, I thought I was so smart. I was prepping for a, a, a workshop for parents, actually, around RBC curriculum and, and concept-based inquiry. And I was thinking about a metaphor analogy to use, and I was thinking about soccer. And uh, I thought I was so brilliant. And then I went back and read his article, which <laughs> was written much before the time I was thinking about this metaphor. And he uses baseball. And I was like, oh, wow, there we go. You have the better um, sport. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, if you're, the list, your listeners um, may be interested in going to check out that article. But, um, but my understanding of it and, and the, the metaphor I was using with soccer is what I shared with parents who got this right away was, okay, how many of you, um, let's imagine, sorry, that you would like your child to really enjoy soccer and be a fairly good soccer player. You know, can we imagine that? Yes. Okay. Um, so let's imagine that there's sort of one trajectory. Let's imagine to do that, to fulfill that aim, you're going to have your child show up at a gym and do soccer drills alone. That's it. You're never going to watch a soccer game. You're not going to go to a soccer game. You're not going to kick the ball around. You're not going to talk about how much you love soccer. None of that. It's just going to the gym, doing the drill, and coming back. Um, how many of you would say that that is a really effective way to develop a really fantastic soccer player? 
who loves soccer. And of course, no one is like, yep, <laughs> that's yeah. right. Um, but there is a role for those drills to play. Um, but then as you know, you, and I know you, you both know this, but um, we need to sort of see the whole game. So when I think about, you know, artistry, there's an artistry in that, you know, of pairing all of those rich experiences together to help children see and feel the whole game, but also to help redefine that game <clears throat> and expand upon it. Um, so when I think about purposeful play, um, and I should give a definition of that. So I'm going to use the definition from um, the BC curriculum. Um, so the BC curriculum, which, so again, we're mandated to um, use purposeful play, and this is coming from the arts, but it's also in mathematics. Uh, it's defined as learning that uses real life and or imaginary situations to engage and challenge learners' thinking. Mm -hmm. I love that. Through purposeful play, students express their natural curiosity while exploring the world around them. It also provides a means for high-level reasoning and problem-solving in a variety of ways. And I just shared this on, on Instagram stories that I'll, I'll make a highlight um, on my Instagram, uh, which is at Pop-Up Studio Ed. Um, so, you know, if we think about it that way, I know um, one of my, my favorite sort of mentors, it's a, a teacher that I wanted to be like in my early years of teaching, is Miss Frizzle. Mm. on the magic school bus. Indeed, indeed. My students called me that my first year of teaching and I thought it was such a great compliment. Oh yeah, totally, right? I'm like, I just need a magic school bus, <laughs> right? And you think about like, oh, I just think, you know, purposeful play in action. I mean, you get to go inside the body or you become a bee, you know, you, you get to really like fully immerse yourself uh, in, this, in this context. So, mm. you know, it just echoes back that whole contextual learning piece and and that example i showed with winton right you know i think that's purposeful play in action um mm -hmm. uh yeah and so um i really am a big believer in in that role of play and um i was lucky enough actually to attend project zero classroom a few years ago a couple of years ago um and at harvard graduate school of education and while i was there i was introduced to the pedagogy of play project which I would highly recommend if, if your uh, listeners are, are interested in the things we're talking about to go and check it out. Um, the whole project is, aspires to change the way that educators, family members, and policymakers think about play and playful learning. And they offer tools and resources to systematically bring playful learning into schools. So it's like just so awesome. Um, and I know that they're a work in, that this research is a work in progress as well. But one of the things that I loved was a model that they were showing us at the time. And there were three elements, uh, much like, you know, my three elements of kinds of material experience, their three elements for play are choice, wonder, and delight choice, wonder, and delight. And so my understanding um, of this work and, and what we were doing when, in person when I was um, listening to the researchers talk about this project, is we explored various scenarios, uh, learning scenarios through these lenses, both as a way to look and analyze where do these concepts live here, which Julie, you know, that's, that's one of my favorite questions to ask. Where does choice live here? Where does wonder live here? Where does delight live here? And how can we amplify those pieces. And we looked at learning across ages um, and across contexts, which was really lovely. So when we think about, oh, you know, pop-up studio, it's for early years or it's for elementary, I would push back and say, well, no, actually, because I think as a learner myself, and I'm much older than an elementary school child, um, <laughs> these are elements that I really value in my learning. You know, I want there to be choice. I, I want that wonder and I want the delight. It can be rigorous and hard and challenging. And, and I know that's where we grow. Um, but if there's no delight or joy in what we're doing, I think about Lois Malaguchi's quote, nothing without joy. I think it's hard to sustain it. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I really, as you can tell, I love research and I love to think about how these concepts all weave together, but I, I just see beautiful synergies um, between that notion of artistry and, and purposeful play. And that creates a kind of an interesting intersection within the conversations we had with our previous guest, Angela Stockman, where sometimes the aesthetics of play um, and the language of play to many people feels like it's trapped in the primary world. Um, it's, it's something that isn't as, as, as serious or rigorous uh, as the world of secondary education. But I think that you, you bring up a very good point 
that especially thinking about the types of skills and, and um, habits of mind and ways of knowing that are that are, that are valued right now in, in the in the working world, they are becoming increasingly dynamic. Um, they are becoming increasingly creative, and it really becomes about the choices and the intentions behind those choices that we make when we do create. Mm -hmm. um, and, and that is something that is, takes on even more significance when you get into secondary level schooling. Um, and you're thinking about the types of uh, complicated contexts that secondary students have to navigate. So I do, I do mm -hmm. think, and, and I always get a lot from having conversation with primary, um, with teachers and, and people who are doing things um, from that perspective, because I think it's something that's largely absent from secondary classrooms. Um, mm. So could, could you talk about a little bit about maybe uh, materials, uh, materials as like sort of the objects that we bring in um, to do these things? So I think that might be a really easy place for secondary teachers to start is to be kind of reflective about what materials can they bring into their classroom um, mm -hmm. that then generate that purposeful play and those, those creative decisions. For sure, for sure. Well, um, I really see the world as relational. I'm very interested in relationships between, you know, ideas, between people, between stuff that we use. And I think those uh, relationships are just super important. It forms how we see the world, how we respond. Um, so I'm really interested in the roles that materials play in shaping our understanding of the world as it is and reimagining what it can be. Um, so sometimes when we think about materials, we might think about, you know, loose parts. Um, but I think that is one uh, uh, avenue to look at materials, but we can think about materials even as the text that we're using. Um, mm. Just Pop-Up Studio is, is um, designed to help us think about popping a learning experience up from 2D to 3D, both from skills and knowledge to concept base, um, but also with materials. So the actual learning surface is popped up. Um, so one of the ways to help us think about this is using our metaphorical thinking. So I give an example in the book um, of some professional learning that I attended at, the Op at Opal School uh, in Portland, which I really loved and learned so much. And I think this, this example may resonate with um, some of your secondary audience. And again, I don't live in that world, so I can't, I don't know, but I'm hopeful that it will resonate. So here's the scene. Um, we've been learning, uh, thinking about uh, lots of really rigorous concepts, um, thinking about the politics and education and just heavy, awesome, heavy. And we were sitting at beautifully appointed tables with various loose parts. Um, we had natural materials there and we uh, had journals to write in. And so we were asked to do some reflective thinking on our own and some writing about a context where we were struggling and what we might do about it. So I was writing as I do. And that's, you know, even though I'm not a comfortable writer, if it's going to be uh, published or produced in some kind of way to make visible to others, but it's comfortable for me if it's just for my own, my own use, right? So I, I'm writing and I finished a little bit early. And so I'm looking at these materials and at first I was like, I don't like, what is this? Like, I don't need these. And on the table in the middle was a glass vase with these sharp sticks of wire. And I grabbed it and I tugged the ends down and it bent really easily. And I was surprised in that moment with this material, like, whoa, this bends so easily. Like that's way more flexible than I anticipated it to be. And, you know, I know that um, understanding is an accumulation of experiences. So it's, I, I can't really attribute just that moment, but for me, it felt like that moment instigated or inspired this realization of, maybe I'm seeing the context that I'm writing about where I'm feeling a bit frustrated or stagnated as being more rigid than it actually is. Maybe there's more flexibility here and maybe I am being too rigid and I could be more flexible. So it was this beautiful gateway into thinking anew about my situation, which was super powerful. Uh, right. And so we might not think about like, Oh, let's bring wire, but um, wire has these beautiful affordances, um, like what I was just describing to you. It can seem really rigid, yet it's quite flexible, depending on the gauge of the wire, of course. So, and it, you know, I know Angela talked about this as well, but just engaging students' metaphorical thinking, which we also mm. often, sorry, give them a bad time thinking that they don't think that way. But I wonder if maybe the conditions 
aren't conducive to thinking that way. Whereas I find the work with materials is, is that. I can give another example. Working with the grade five class, we were reading a book um, called Bootleg, I think. I think it might be out of print, but in the book, um, uh, chocolate's been banned by this good for you group that was elected in, I believe. And, you know, the, the kids are ticked. <laughs> they are not happy. <laughs> the dangers of democracy. Taking our chocolate. Yeah, so they, um, uh, there's a, a, a scene in the book where um, all the chocolate, uh, there's a chocolate detector machine that goes around and all the chocolate has to be thrown on the street. And this chocolate detector grinds the chocolate. And the, the writer, and I forgive me, I cannot remember the writer's name right now, but um, the writer just does this beautiful job of helping us to visualize <clears throat> um, this, this whole scene that's taking place. Mm -hmm. So uh, I'm doing a little bit of a read aloud here, and I'm working through the lens of visualization and connection. And all of the learners in my group, I had about 30 diverse learners, um, had some plaster scenes. And part of it, you could think, oh, that's, you know, good self-reg. Um, but, you know, I wanted it for something more. I wanted to help with the visualization. So we stopped in that moment and I said, I'd like you to grind down the plaster scene like we're reading in the book. And I want you to just totally feel that with your body right now. And so they're grinding down with the, you know, that area of your, of your hand. Is it called the heel of your hand or is that, I don't know. The pump, this, you know, this part of your hand, <laughs> part that can grind down, right? Yeah, yeah. I go back to <clears throat> learn my anatomy. <clears throat> Excuse me. So they're grinding down. And I said, so what is the chocolate grinder or chocolate machine grinding down, chocolate detector? And they're like the chocolate. So very literal, right? Mm. And I'm like, well, what else potentially? Mm. And now when we're, we're nudging, I'm trying to nudge the thinking here. And someone's like, like the people. And someone mm. else is like, ew. <laughs> well, are they? You know, are they actually grinding down the people? No. Um, but it led to like they're grinding down their 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 ideas. They're grinding mm -hmm. down their desires. They're grinding down their freedom. Not everybody mm -hmm. wants this. And so it it again was this this beautiful gateway into a very rich conversation that moved us conceptually from more of the tame end of understanding. So David Perkins uh, talks about this and, and gave me permission to write about it in the book. I think it's, so for the first time, I don't think it's printed anywhere else, but this wildometer um, where we went from being on the tame side of these, mm -hmm. these concepts down into the wild, down into the ravine. And of course, with older uh, children, you could go even further. Mm. Um, but again, I don't know that that dialogue would have taken place in the same way if we didn't have that plaster scene that we were able to physically manipulate, we had the concrete representation to mm. move into the, into the abstract. And I think we see this in mathematics as an example, right? The use of manipulatives um, sometimes I think is seen as a weakness, uh, mm. but I feel it's a real strength. And, and in our curriculum anyway, we need learners, uh, we're mandated to help our learners see mathematics through all kinds of avenues, not just the symbolic. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, yeah. indeed. So maybe those things help, help uh, your secondary listeners um, awaken to some possibilities that might be interesting and feel relevant and meaningful for them. For sure. You're at least our fifth guest who's mentioned either metaphorical thinking or analogical reasoning. Yep, um, yep, and yep. so we're, we're knee deep in, in our next manuscript. Uh, we're in the editing revising phase and um, uh, we can't wait to add this because so, so David Perkins, I love, I, I actually prefer his uh, tame to wild meter. We are using uh, Perkins. Actually it is David Perkins uh, and, and, and Solomon's uh, near and far transfer. It's, it's the same. Oh, yeah. it's, it's the same Perkins. Um, but uh, the idea of, of every time that we're, you know, all the cognitive scientists agree that that transfer is hard and that near is a lot, a lot more attainable than far transfer or dis, we're saying dissimilar just to make it very clear. Um, but it's, you, it's, it's easy when you bring in comparisons, when you bring in symbolism, metaphors, and um, analogies. And so uh, I love that. I'm so glad you brought that up because we're seeing that as such a common thread throughout our podcast. Um, mm -hmm. Even though we're having very different guests on you and Angela are somewhat similar, but we've had people talk about, uh, we had a guy on just in the middle of lockdown. So he had like a face mask on his desk, Adam Hansen. 
and he just said, okay, let's just, I'm just do this on the fly. And he says, I see face mask. I see barrier. I see security. I see, and I'm going, I'm, you know, sitting there going, he's going concept, 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 concept. <laughs> all, you know, that's what, that's the beauty of Lynn Erickson's work is, is really when you think about concepts, every time that you uh, make comparisons, you're linking two things that are dissimilar through concepts. Um, and so I think we can get a lot further with our students when we do this kind of thinking. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I think also too, um, you know, I think as educators, we have a responsibility to teach the world as it is um, without foreclosing opportunities to see it anew. I'm thinking about Hannah Arendt's work now. Mm -hmm. um, yep. And I, I think um, the kind of materials that we bring in um, can really help to bridge worlds that can seem distant from each other. Um, in my own master's uh, research, I did some original research with middle school learners. And even though we were working, we were working in a, in a, uh, I don't even know how to call it a project. I'll call it a project called Living Inquiry, where we were, we were working with four existential themes, place, language, time, and self-other. Um, I was also teaching um, in an IBPYP program. Uh, and so I was thinking, you know, we're kind of working through inquiry and giving children choice, blah, blah, blah. But they saw such a distinction between the work we were doing in our regular studies, so to speak, and our Living Inquiry work, because we were working differently. And the, the role of choice was different, but like a main difference was the kind of um, content we were working with. Uh, with Living Inquiry, it's about capturing lived experience, your personal lived experience, and all that subjectivity. Um, and then going from there, with our other studies, it was usually someone else's experience. And I think about, mm. you know, Sherry Tishman um, from Harvard again, and she talks about uh, there's so much learning to be done when we slow down and discover for ourselves the intricacy of objects, systems, and relationships. So we think about materials we can bring in, right, to look closely at these objects as representations of something bigger, a phenomenon, uh, as an example. So there's a really great book, um, Loose Parts 3, Inspiring Culturally Sustainable Environments, that is outstanding. And it's, it's for early years, um, but I just think it, it awakens me anyway to think about work with adults and, and therefore I, I can't imagine secondary uh, wouldn't be inspired by. I'm, I'm pretty sure Angela told Trevor that he needed to take, to, to have one of those. There's Loose Parts 1, Loose Parts 2, and yep. Loose Parts 3, right? I, and I believe if there's a fourth one uh -huh. as well. Um, but yeah, it's, it's really excellent for thinking about the role of materials in, in learning and also in um, creating conditions that are conducive for the kinds of thinking we're going for. Yeah, right and, and, it, and it seems like those types of thinking are more phenomenological in nature. Mm -hmm. it's, it's we are trying to teach students and, and we talk a lot um, about this, the idea of like sense making of we're dealing with these incredibly complex systems, social, political, economic, racial, and they're global at global scale at this point. I mean, if you think about what's happening with the coronavirus and our ability to make sense and, and meaning of those, it can't be, we, that can't happen with inert knowledge and information, right? It, it has to be this, we need like the skills and faculties to be able to understand these sort of complex overlapping systems and, and to make sense of them. And, and I love the idea of, using materials as representations of those systems, objects, and relationships, because we might not understand, you know, whatever, uh, you know, uh, epidemiology and the way that viruses work and move and operate. But if we can maybe create some sort of like metaphor or analogy through materials, we can, we can create this bridge between domains. And I think that's such a powerful lesson as we, as we kind of think about like, what is the purpose of the future of education? And as knowledge and information is just changing and evolving so rapidly, we can't keep pace. So what, what ability do we need to, to navigate a world that is constantly evolving? It seems like that sort of like representational skill set would be increasingly important. And I think too that, that materials, um, at least for me, uh, and I think the Opal, um, my Opal story example illustrates this, mm -hmm. that um, for me, you, uh, pulling that wire was a springboard into inquiry, a springboard into thinking differently. Mm. Um, I didn't have an idea and then represent that idea with the wire. 
Hmm. And so that was a turning point for me to think about materials uh, as thinking partners. Does that make hmm. sense? Yeah, for I sure. Like the difference yeah. between, um, okay, let's make a model. Like we've learned, you talked about um, a virus as an example. Mm-hmm. Okay, let's, let's take that and let's make a, co- a concrete representation of it through a model using plasticine and toothpicks or something. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, you know, yes, there's so much value in that. Um, but what about the materials we're offering to springboard the thinking and then to deepen the thinking? So, it, so the material use, um, offering materials doesn't need to occur as bookends of a learning experience. Mm-hmm. Right? Mm-hmm. Sometimes I think we see it as the end or maybe at the beginning, but it's, I think, throughout. And I think um, someone who's really practiced and using materials, and I'm, I'm learning a lot, um, is using materials to continue to nudge the thinking. Mm-hmm. Um, there's beautiful examples of this um, through Dr. Sylvia Kine's work. Uh, oh, amazing. So an example that I was listening to in early years was, I, I believe um, they had off, she had created these little um, nests. They were kind of rock covering with, with felt. And um, I think she, she had certain intentions for creating those, which she went into, but there was like hundreds of them that they put around the room in, in their center and the children could encounter these materials. And they were watching and listening and looking very closely at what the children were doing to experience, explore um, these materials, what they did, how they moved them, um, how they uh, explored them sensorily. Uh, and then they used what they were seeing to nudge the thinking. So there seemed to be a growing interest in this notion of nesting. And mm-hmm. uh, I think the last image that we saw is, is Sylvia and her colleagues had created like cocoons, basically, that were child-sized for the, child-sized for the children to go in and hatch out of. <laughs> amazing no i'm not suggesting that like okay we all need to you know make a uh, learner size uh things that they can hatch out of to experience yeah. that <laughs> but how different how different is that mm. i mean that was alongside you know images of birds hatching and they were going the children were going outside and they were seeing this phenomenon in real time um so again you know think about howard gardner and in, in his book changing minds um the more avenues and uh, modalities we can use to understand the concept, the, the richer and deeper it's going to mm-hmm. become. And so materials can play a, a very powerful role, I think, in nudging that thinking. Mm-hmm. I love, I wrote it down, materials to nudge thinking. Um, and, and almost this sort of uh, bi-directional relationship with thinking and materials. Uh, I think that's, that's profound. Thank you for that. Mm-hmm. I love it. <laughs> and I mean, Reggio, right, is uh, Reggio Amelia's, like the work that's happening there is just like, oh my gosh, um, there's just so much inspiration that can be taken. I was supposed to go um, there for a week for, for study, um, but then of course, coronavirus. So oh, no, I'm, wow. I'm waiting for my chance <laughs> to learn from these educators firsthand and uh, dive more into uh, that project work. Cause I just think it's, it's just so responsive. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's, it's not, sometimes I think this image of inquiry is like, uh, there's no scaffolding mm-hmm. <laughs> or, mm-hmm. uh, or the, 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 this notion of emergent curriculum, you know, um, that the teacher is somehow not involved, but I, I really just don't think that that's true. I think we all have very important roles to play in developing and transferring ideas and dispositions, et cetera. For sure, and it is it is it is something that needs time. Uh, you can't just hear the term purposeful play or play based and think you're going to make all these assumptions about it. You have to read, and and I've you know just through listening to you and Angela, I've learned a lot. So thank you for that. Well, I am, like I said, I've said it, I think about three times in this, in this podcast, like I am a work in progress and Mm -hmm. it is somewhat terrifying with this book to put out ideas that, um, when they're in print can feel fixed. Mm -hmm. (laughs) It's like, Oh, but I want to be able to change my mind because I'm always Mm -hmm. growing. Right. So I, I wrote multiple times in the book, this is emergent work and it's Mm -hmm. rooted from our experiences, Janice and myself and um, we, we, we feel like it's an invitation to continue to dialogue about what mm-hmm. it means to live well mm-hmm. in the world with, with learners. Um, and that is an ongoing dialogue and that we need diverse voices to help us to make sense of. So I welcome, you know, conversations, opportunities to keep learning, 
um, opportunities to be challenged because, you know, I'm trying to challenge my own thinking all the time right. and seeking out, um, right. you know, voices that are, are different from my own. Um, so that is just, I'm glad. I hope I have a long life to live because I just yeah. feel like there's so much <laughs> There's so much, to learn. There's Spe- so much to learn. Speaking of, Misty, where can people find you? Where can listeners find you uh, if they want to learn more? Yeah, so I am trying to be like, not everywhere, because who can do that? Mm-hmm. <laughs> but, uh, but more more places than I have been, which is requiring me to be like super risk taker. Um, so uh, right now I'm spending uh, time on Instagram multiple times a week. Um, and I would really encourage your listeners to follow me there at, at Pop-Up Studio Ed. Um, every week on Thursdays, I've been sharing a weekly pop power up. Um, and the whole notion there is turning everyday moments into concept-based learning experiences. So I just posted one yesterday about, so you're taking a walk on your neighborhood, <laughs> uh, <laughs> in your neighborhood, not on your neighborhood, in your neighborhood. And then it goes, the next slide is, uh, let's pretend, you know, imagine with me, let's pretend, you know, we're, and so there's that authenticity piece. So there's just a ton of purposeful play in that. And I think everyone can take a neighborhood walk in some way or another, whether you're in a wheelchair, you're a walker, um, you know, et cetera. Hopefully, you know, you can get outside. I know um, in some communities you're allowed outside for half an hour a day, uh, which is very difficult. Um, so, you know, I'm trying to be really uh, mindful and inclusive in those weekly power-ups. And, and I recognize that they could be very British Columbian centered <laughs> where I live, work and play on traditional territory, unceded mm-hmm. territory of the Squamish nation. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, yeah, there, there, there is invitations for sure. And I'd love to hear from people about what they want to see. Uh, and there's all, all the other kinds of inspiration there every week. Twitter, I'm on every day as well. Um, Facebook, uh, I, I, I cheat. And <laughs> I just <laughs> do that button on Instagram that like goes to Facebook. Right, right. Uh, but yeah, but I'm there as well. Um, I have a newsletter people can subscribe to on my website. My website is mistypatterson.com. That comes out every month, month and once a month. And that's exclusive content. And I'm going to be starting a blog on my website. Well, thank you so much. What what a lovely invitation to be checking out more of your work. That seems to be a, the watchword for today's episode. So uh, thanks, Missy. That was a great conversation. I'm going to start strolling around my apartment and looking for loose parts and bothering my wife to ask <laughs> well, her what concepts got... live here on our walk. So yeah, sure. and got, I see you've got some artwork behind you. Yes, you know? indeed. I mean, indeed. Amazing. <laughs> the artwork is just phenomenal, right, for materials. But even like inside your kitchen drawer, right? Like That's right. Now you're going to start like thinking about the materials you have all over the place. And, indeed. And what concepts live in those materials. Mm-hmm. So yeah, yep. you're just going to be like nerding out like I do all over the, <laughs> all over the place. My husband's like, do you ever turn off? <laughs> yes really, I'm like no, no. <laughs> anyway thank you so much for having me I really enjoyed the conversation thanks for tuning in to this episode of Conceptually Speaking we hope you enjoyed the conversation and are coming away with a stronger grasp of the concepts and mental models that help us understand our world if you like this podcast feel free to like comment or subscribe on your favorite platform if you want to learn more or get involved check out our website at edtosavetheworld.com and join our Facebook group Learning the Transverse 